I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with professor and reproductive rights advocate Carol Joffe about her new book, Obstacle Course, The Everyday Struggle to Get an Abortion in America. We open our conversation by discussing how legislation has failed to protect access to abortion because it overlooks the everyday obstacles that make it nearly impossible for many women to obtain an abortion. Well, legislatively, I confess to being very cynical. Um, <laughs> I Seriously, I don't think that even, I mean, <laughs> look, the country is deeply, deeply divided about abortion. Those who are pro-choice see these restrictions as inhibiting, often in a very cruel way, women's ability to get an abortion. Those who are against abortion say, yeah, that's the point. We, we are putting yeah. these things in precisely so we don't believe in abortion. So therefore, um, these restrictions are good because they make it harder to get an abortion. They, they make it easier to close down clinics. So all this is to say that I'm, I mean, in terms of the legislative process, um, I don't think that anything we say in our book will sway those who, who are opposed to abortion, who put in anti-abortion restrictions. What my co-author David Cohn and I are hoping is that those who are pro-choice but do not do abortion work or study or advocacy 24-7, like many of the people we discuss in our book, uh, will come to understand how onerous these restrictions are and hopefully will we'll move to remove those legislators out of office who, who, who are doing this. As people who are pro-choice, when I look for someone to vote into office, right, just to put it simply, mm-hmm. it feels like those people, when they speak to us and, you know, they're saying, like, vote for me. When they talk about abortion, they talk about Roe v. Wade. And mm-hmm. it doesn't spread from there. They don't really talk about all of the little restrictions mm-hmm. that have gone mm-hmm. into place, which makes exercising your right to an abortion nearly impossible for a lot of women. Mm-hmm. And that's what I mean legislatively. One of the things that you point out in the book is that, you know, since Roe v. Wade passed, there have been about what, 1,200 restrictions put into place? Yeah, by now, probably, probably more like 1,300, yeah. Right, and I feel like none of our politicians are really focusing on those. You know, they have a blind spot and they're only looking at Roe v. Wade. We have to protect Roe v. Wade. Yes, no, it certainly makes sense. And, and, uh, you know, what I would say in response to that is, uh, of course, it's important to protect Roe v. Wade. And there's a lot to be very nervous about at this very moment uh, about Roe. But what researching and writing this book showed to me is that many women already live in a post-Roe world. In other words, if Roe is overturned, what presumably will happen is it will be turned back to the states. That means there'll be a lot of traveling from what we now call hostile states to quote, haven states. But that's already happening. I mean, one thing that really surprised me, and I've studied abortion more than 35 years, uh, one thing that really surprised me was just the extent of the travel, just the efforts it took to just get to a clinic for so many women. The really important thing about your book when I was reading it, you outline the stories of a lot of women. I think the first person you highlight is a 15-year-old teenager, right? Mm -hmm. And her parents are kind of in and out of the picture. And when you think about the fact that in some states you have to have parental consent, right? And you think about the thousands of dollars that it takes to get an abortion. And this Mm -hmm. particular person 
ended up in one of those what you call a fake clinic. Um, right. What do they call them? Um, crisis, CPC clinics? A crisis pregnancy center. Can you just talk us through that scenario of, of what that might have been like for her, a 15-year-old teenager? Well, she was ex- extraordinary. Um, we did not interview her personally. We, we found her story. I mean, she had written it up. Um, so I can't speak to her personally, but she she had extraordinary uh extraordinary determination. Um, what it was like for her to, to go to the center. She lived in a state where she had to make a separate trip to the clinic 24 hours before the abortion. She got to the clinic. She realized something was wrong. Uh, it was a fake clinic. These crisis pregnancy centers, and there's thousands of them, there, there are more crisis pregnancy centers uh, in the United States now than there are abortion-providing facilities. And in wow. a number of states, they get they get public funding. You know, one of the most of the, of the many things in this world to be enraged about. One of the most enraging things is, for example, in the state of Texas, money is taken away from family planning centers, not even abortion. I mean, Texas, you may be sure, does not give money to abortion clinics, but to family planning programs, contraceptive programs, and gives them to these religiously sponsored crisis pregnancy centers that outright lie to women. They either tell them their ultrasound is so far along that uh, they can't possibly get an abortion, or sometimes they tell them their ultrasound shows actually an earlier stage in pregnancy than they actually are. So these women won't rush. And by the time they get to a clinic, um, they'll be too late. Another feature of them is that they have been very aggressive about buying property as near as possible to legitimate abortion facilities. And it's often very, very confusing to patients. I mean, this this case that we talked about in the book we call her Talia, it's very common, especially, for example, in, in a case that we do discuss, there was a park, a crisis pregnancy center had a parking lot right next to a clinic. People from the fake clinic would stand outside, would wave women in who, of course, thought that they were being waved into the real clinic. So yeah, th- this is one of many, many problems that women face when they try to get an abortion. You know, I, when I read that story, I, it, it was just incredible to me. I was so angry and just appalled at the lengths that they go to, 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 to lie to women and, you know, mm-hmm. and to teenagers who were, you know, going through something that's really, really hard. So and in that case with Talia, this this clinic, and you can remind me or tell me if I'm correct or not, this clinic was right next door, very close to it, and it mm-hmm. looked very much like the real clinic. Mm-hmm. And the name was very similar. That's right. And when you mm-hmm. go into these places, they're they're you know, they're wearing lab coats mm-hmm. to make you think that they're doctors. That's right. And just it's just unfathomable to me the links that they go through. Uh, yeah, no. The um, <laughs> I think you hit the right word on the head. It's unfathomable the lengths that these fake clinics go to. But it also, um, Jennifer, I would also say it's unfathomable the lengths that women, not just teenagers, but women in general have to go through to get their abortions. And they do. Yeah, they they do. Right. That gets to one of my next questions. Do we do we have any data on the percentages, the percentage of cases where obstacles collectively where they've been successful, right, in a woman not getting abortion? We don't, um, I mean, that's a great question. We, we don't have good data on 
specifically women who were dissuaded or lied to at a crisis pregnancy center. Uh, my colleagues here at, uh, at UCSF in the ANSWER program have come up with an estimate that about 4,000 women a year uh, who show up at clinics are turned away because they arrived too late in, in gestation. Your listeners should understand that all abortion facilities are not uniform. Some go only through the first trimester of pregnancy. Some go to 18 weeks. Uh, some states, a number of states, have banned abortions after 20 weeks. Uh, there's only three or four clinics in the United States that will perform abortions after 24 weeks, and that's usually for um, fetal anomalies or, or the woman herself is, is very ill. I mean, those are not the only people who get abortions there, but that's the bulk of the cases. So um, it's a very cruel, vicious cycle. You're a poor woman. You find out you're pregnant. You try. You you look around. You try to find a clinic. You make an appointment. You try to find someone who will drive you there. You try to arrange childcare for your children. Sixty percent of abortion patients are our parents, uh, you arrange to take time off from work. So all, you have to sort of put all these things into place. What we found out is simply getting a, getting a reliable ride to a clinic if you don't have your own car, or even if you do. Some clinics uh, use sedation, which means you are not able to drive yourself home afterwards. Anyway, by the time you get all these pieces in place and you show up to the clinic, you may be past that clinic's limit. Um, for example, uh, in South, South Dakota has only one clinic, and they only go through the first trimester. Uh, the same is true for the clinic, I believe, in, in North Dakota. So depending where you live, depending how reliable your network is, depending on who you can tell, and then what makes abortion different from other procedures is it's not always safe or comfortable to, to ask people in your network to drive you to your abortion. So all of which is to say a certain number of women show up at clinics and they're just too late. And as I say, my colleagues have estimated about 4,000 women a year show up too late. Yeah. And so I think you refer to something called the the turnaway study. Yes. Um, so do we have an idea of what the outcomes are for someone who has tried to get an abortion? Let's say these 4,000 women wanted an abortion, but for some reason could not get an abortion. What are the outcomes and how does it impact the rest of their lives? Because I know it can't be good. Right. Well, until recently, we had no data on this subject. Um, thanks to my colleagues here at Answer, we now do have some answers. And your listeners should know that um, there will be a book appearing on the Turnaway Study. We, we talk about it a bit in our book, but the Turnaway Study itself, the lead author, Diana Green Foster, will publish a book that will be out in June uh, on the Turnaway Study. And what the Turnaway Study did is it, it exactly as you said, it, it compared women uh, of similar characteristics those who were not able to get an abortion that they wanted and those who did. And on every measure, they found out that women who got an abortion did better. They were, I mean, 
They were less likely to become poorer. They had better health outcomes. They were less likely. These are those who received abortions. Um, less likely to be in abusive relationships. And the study went on for five years and asked a lot of questions about children. And it turned out that the children of women who got abortions, either these children were already in those families or were born after the woman got the abortion, their children did better. I mean, there was a very important article in the Journal of American Pediatrics, if, if I'm remembering correctly, just showing that. You know, I know that there's also, and I'm not really clear what the link is, but I know that there's a link to our high maternal mortality rates with women who are turned away or who, who try to get an abortion and, and can't. Do you know what that link is? You know, I, I don't. Um, we can speculate that those who don't get abortions may be more likely to attempt abortions on their own. My colleagues haven't studied this. Attempting to get an abortion on one's own today is much less physically dangerous than it was in the pre-Row era because we now have medications that some women can get over the internet or on the black market. Let me answer the question this way. It is basically, it is the same populations in this country who both are most likely to seek an abortion and who are also most likely to be subject to difficulties with pregnancy and birth. I'm talking about, no surprise here, I'm talking about low-income disproportionately women of color. Um, abortion patients are, are poor. 50% live below the poverty line. Uh, another 25% live below 200% of the poverty line, which is still poor. I mean, these people would be classified as, as poor as opposed to, in quote, severe poverty. So 75% of abortion patients are, and who are just not entirely, of course, but who are disproportionately women of color um, are poor. Uh, the women most likely to suffer maternal mortality are also women of color, um, mainly African-American women. Uh, now, I should also say that this country, I mean, apart from the abortion issue, this country really has a, a bizarre, for an advanced industrial country, a, a, a bizarre, puzzling rate of maternal mortality for African-American women. So you, you may have heard of the very strange case of Serena Williams, um, yeah, Serena yes, yes. Williams, who at this moment is playing in the Australian Open, fortunately, uh, she almost died. Serena Williams, who is many times over a millionaire, who's a celebrity, when she uh, was in a hospital uh, by now about two years ago giving birth to her daughter, she told the nurses, you know, something's wrong. I, I don't feel right. She had earlier experienced um, a pulmonary embolism, a very serious medical condition. Uh, I mean, that ultimately can become fatal if it's not treated. And she, she Serena Williams, uh, was, was uh, uh, you know, was, was not taken seriously. And, and that, that sort of became a cause celebre that even middle class, and it, it was, I mean, I'm talking about Serena because presumably most of your listeners have heard of her and she's famous, but um, there is a noticeable problem with 
middle-class black women, and you, so you can't attribute it strictly to poverty, really to racism, the racism that takes place in, in many healthcare facilities, that black women's complaints are not taken as seriously uh, as those of others. So I, rather than linking it to abortion per se, I think the, the very interesting problem of black maternal mortality is, uh, and, and if you compare maternal mortality rates in the United States, to countries that we are typically compared to, advanced industrial societies of Western Europe, for example, Scandinavia. I mean, our, our maternal mortality rates are, are shocking. I've read the story about Serena many, many times, and I don't talk about this a lot publicly, but the exact same thing happened to me. I'm black, really? but I, I had a, a pulmonary, a bilateral pulmonary embolism as a, it was a complication from, you know, some birth control and some other things and um, wasn't taken seriously. I was misdiagnosed and said something wasn't right. And I drove myself to the emergency room and was was diagnosed, but, you know, wasn't taken seriously. Yeah. was told I had, you know, walking pneumonia or the flu or something, wow. <laughs> and which I knew, which I knew was wrong. And I nearly, you know, met my demise too. So wow. I'm, I'm, I'm well aware. Well, Jennifer, I'm very, very, very happy that your story ended happily. I mean, that, that must have, I know. that must have been terrifying. It, it was terrifying. Just how close we are, you know, at any moment moment, especially the pulmonary embolism, because there are almost no symptoms until it's too late. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, it's not necessarily an issue of poverty because I had, you know, doctors around me, you know, it's a matter of, you know, how they view us and judgment and, you know, a lot of other complicated things. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not like I didn't have access to healthcare. It's just that the healthcare I had access to, you know, had some biases. So. Yeah. Well, I, again, I am very happy that this very scary story ended well. Me too. Because you ask a really important question in this book and you ask, you know, whether all of these restrictions, are they unconstitutional, right? Because we, we assume that we have protection for access to an abortion under the Constitution via Roe v. Wade. But the fact that these obstacles are making it impossible, are they together unconstitutional? Um, well, the <laughs> great question. Uh, we thought we thought we had a real victory a, a couple of years ago in the whole women's health case in Texas. Just to, to back up a little, uh, an earlier Supreme Court case said that restrictions were constitutional as long as it did not place a, quote, undue burden. That was Sandra Day O'Connor's contribution. Uh, it, it was anything was constitutional as long as it did not place an undue burden on a woman uh, seeking an abortion. And but no one ever defined, including her, uh, the Supreme Court never said what a, quote, undue burden it was. So what happened is that states kept doing restriction after restriction after restriction. For example, uh, in uh, several states, there was a 72-hour waiting period. Now think of a woman in Utah, South Dakota, both of those places have them. 
Utah, there's maybe two clinics, South Dakota, only one. And South Dakota is a huge state. Think of a woman driving across the state, leaving her kids. South Dakota has this other restriction. You you have to come on one day and be counseled by a doctor, and your abortion has to be with exactly the same doctor uh, 72 hours or more later, and they only go up to 14 weeks. Now, you tell me how, if, if from a common sense way, that's not an undue burden, but, right. but, but the courts upheld it. Anyway, so undue burdens were never really satisfactorily defined. States did whatever they want. Uh, if you think, if you, meaning the legislator, think this is in a woman's interest, then fine, do it. Whole women's health was a was a breakthrough. Uh, it was in 2016. It was before the decision came down in June, before the very fateful uh, November election. Uh, and the state of Texas had said all abortions have to take place in a so-called ambulatory surgical center. In other words, basically like a little hospital. You had to have the same specifications of storage room for janitors and the hallways had to be certain width and the airflow had to be this and that. Uh, things that maybe make sense in a hospital setting absolutely have no health benefits uh, for outpatient abortion. And the court, Justice Scalia had not been replaced yet, uh, so it was eight members of the court. The good guys won, <laughs> or the good people won, I should say, since three women voted uh, in the majority. The majority in Whole Woman's Health said, look, there has to be scientific evidence showing that these restrictions, oh, besides the ambulatory surgical center, uh, that uh, doctors at the clinic had to have hospital admitting privileges. That's not how medicine works anymore. If somebody would have a complication with an abortion, uh, and which is, by the way, extremely rare, abortion is 14 times safer than childbirth in terms of what women die from. Uh, but if there is a complication, most likely she'd go to a hospital back to the community that she came from, or she would be treated in the ER at, you know, in the city where the abortion was. And none of the local hospitals in Texas uh, were willing to give admitting privileges uh, to the whole women's health clinic. So the court in 2016 finally said, no, an, uh, an undue burden, and you have to show it. It's based on scientific evidence. You have to show that there's actually health benefits. And it turned out that the lawyer for the state of Texas was absolutely unable to do it. Again, my colleagues from UCSF, not to be, not to be too promotional here, but <laughs> I am very, very proud of my colleagues, as well as a wonderful research team at the University of Texas. These two groups collaborated. They sh showed exhaustive evidence, how many miles women traveled and why it simply made no sense. And the court said, no, no to the state of Texas. You're not showing any benefit. So they struck down those um, restrictions in Texas. And we, meaning the pro-choice movement, we were all rejoicing. Finally, some rationality uh, in the Supreme Court. Uh, finally, uh, these restrictions that make access so difficult, finally we're done with them. But it turns out 
the elation was short-lived. This March, uh, the Supreme Court will hear yet another abortion case, this one from the state of Louisiana. It's called June, which is the name of the clinic, versus G, G-H-E-E, who I believe is the health commissioner of Louisiana. And it's about hospital admitting privileges. It's like, Supreme, it's like the previous Supreme Court case uh, never happened. And the difference between uh, the composition of the court uh, in 2016, now, of course, we have two new justices that have been appointed by Donald Trump. We have Neil Gorsuch. We have um, Brett Kavanaugh. So it's very, it it is, as you might imagine, a very, very worrisome what will become not only of this case, but, you know, will this whole woman's health uh, case have any meaning with a very conservative Supreme Court? Yes. It's just when I hear about all of these things just collectively, first of all, it just makes me really angry. And then also I think that, you know, Perhaps maybe some of us, most of us, became outraged a little too late because, like you mm-hmm. said, since mm-hmm. 1973, there have been over 1,200 restrictions like this, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And 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 had we fought them as they were happening, perhaps we wouldn't have this ditch we'd have to dig out of. Because I just feel like it's whack-a-mole, you know. Mm-hmm. Like you know, one case was heard in Texas. Like what was that, 2016? Mm-hmm. And now we're in 2019, and a similar case is coming back. It's just mm-hmm. yeah. I don't really know what to do. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you raise an excellent point. Um, I mean, the pro-choice movement worked very hard in the years leading up to Roe. I mean, that was, I mean, uh, there was a medical wing of the pro-choice movement, doctors who had seen what happened to women when abortion was illegal. Uh, there was a feminist movement, a second wave feminism, the late 60s and early 70s. So both feminist health activists as well as medical activists worked very hard to get Roe passed and accepted socially. And then basically, I have to say the pro-choice movement pretty much went home. The anti-abortion movement, however, mobilized immediately after Roe and has been extraordinarily successful and effective. I mean, finally now, I mean, some may say too little, too late, some may say, thank goodness. I mean, now we're seeing more of a proactive pushback from the pro-choice movement. For example, even though there's been 1,200 restrictions uh, passed in 73, in the last couple of years, we've actually seen blue states getting bluer with respect to abortion. And that's very encouraging. And if any of your listeners who are pro-choice have any doubt that elections have consequences. Let me give Exhibit A, the the state of Maine. Maine had a Republican governor. Uh, He was defeated in 2018. Uh, A woman governor, a Democratic woman won. Uh, Since then, the Maine legislature has passed Medicaid coverage for abortion. The federal government does not allow uh, Medicaid payments for abortion. And as I said before, most women who get abortions are poor and therefore on Medicaid. Uh, Only about 15, 16 states have decided to use their own funds to pay for poor women's abortions. And now Maine is one of them. Another very important thing that Maine did after this election, they said that you don't have to be a physician to offer abortions. Maine joined a number of other states in allowing 
what we refer to as, quote, advanced practice clinicians. That's uh, nurse practitioners, nurse midwives, physician assistants, who are very capable of safely providing abortions, especially the earlier ones. And so now Maine does that. And a number of other blue states have taken steps to make abortion access easier. And that's wonderful. I mean, it doesn't help the women in South Dakota or in Alabama directly, but what it does mean is that if, when Roe is overturned, uh, if the pro-choice movement figures out how to get women from hostile states to haven states, there still will be states that are providing abortion. Yeah, well, two numbers I want to mention. I mean, you know, they have a 40 plus year head start (laughs) (laughs) on the pro-choice movement, right? Yes. Um, And then secondly, you you mentioned that I think 90% of the counties in in America don't have an abortion provider. So only 10% of our counties have, you know, places where a person can get an abortion. That just seems, I I mean, I don't want to be a downer. (laughs) Well, it's okay. In this field, it's okay. It's a lot to overcome. I mean, blue states are not. I guess the thing that, that bothers me is that you know, whenever this these um, surveys are done, the majority of the country is in favor of access to abortion, mm-hmm. right? So the majority mm-hmm. of the country, you know, they're in favor of women having access to abortion. However, you know, these anti-abortion people are just louder and more aggressive, and you know, somehow they've you know made it just terrible for the rest of us. I mean, <laughs> just to put it simply. Well, I mean, well, I mean, you're right. <laughs> I, I would just to put things a little bit in context, that ninety percent figure is a little bit misleading because the population is not distributed evenly. It's not That's true. Um, so ninety percent of American counties don't have abortion does not mean that ninety percent of American women live in one of those counties. So it's 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 not quite as bad as it sounds. The figures, I mean, I I don't have them at my fingertips. I believe. And I urge any of your listeners, if you really want to know, to, to double check on me. I mean, I'm a professor and I do not like giving false information. I believe it's one out of uh, three women uh, live uh, in a county without a, without a provider. I could be wrong, but we, we do know that it varies enormously. So, for example, again, some of my colleagues here at Answer did a study on so-called abortion deserts. They found 27 major metropolitan areas, mostly in the south and midwest that are over a hundred miles from a clinic. So if you live in San Francisco or New York or in Seattle or in Portland, arguably there's an oversupply of abortion providers. I mean, there's many, many options to choose from. If you live in Nebraska, if you live in um, Kentucky, uh, you're living in a, I mean, we now have six or seven states with only one clinic. If you're rural, uh, even in blue states. So, for example, uh, New England is basically very pro-choice. There's very few restrictions in, in the New England states as a whole. I mean, New Hampshire, a little bit more mixed than, than some of the others. But, but those are big, big states uh, with severe winters without good public transportation. So even in blue states, some women do have problems. And one of the things that we 
noted in our book, you know, was how important this army, this unheralded army of volunteers is all over this country. I mean, if, I mean, the situation no doubt is serious, but all over this country, there are what we call allies, people who work in organizations uh, like abortion funds, who turn themselves into pretzels to help women get the money, not simply get the money to pay, but also help find them rides. Uh, besides these allies, we also have a huge, huge network of, of volunteers, people who, without getting paid, really go to extraordinary lengths to help people. My co-author David and I spoke to providers and allies and some volunteers in all 50 states. And one of the most extraordinary stories that we heard was this woman uh, in her, at the time in her mid-60s. She was in a southern state with only one clinic. She agreed to pick up a woman who lived about an hour from where the clinic was. And she took her to the clinic in the South. The clinic, turns out the woman, for various reasons, couldn't be seen at that clinic. She had very high blood pressure, and they just didn't feel safe doing her procedure. They called a national organization, and, and the national organizations referred them to a clinic in Washington, D.C. This woman drove from the South to Washington about I mean, the drive was about 10 hours. And turns out in D.C., they also uh, couldn't see her. So, okay, but you know where you can be seen? In New York. There's a New York clinic oh. that will. So, so, you know, so now they're on a three-day road trip. It's right before Christmas. The woman getting the abortion desperately wanted to be home, you know, by Christmas for her kids. So they go to New York. They go to a clinic. The abortion is started. Uh, by now, the woman is well into the second trimester. They're right. in a hotel room together. So this woman, uh, we call her Pat, this woman, Pat, who had driven the stranger from, this, from her home state to D.C., now to New York. Now they're in a hotel room. Sh she's supposed to go back to the clinic the next day to complete the procedure. Some procedures actually take two days. And then a very not unheard of but unusual thing happened. In the middle of the night, this woman started to deliver the fetus. Uh, so, oh. so Pat <laughs> had to call, you know, call emer you know, call 911. The emergency people came. They took her to a hospital. They, they finished. I mean, she was in the hospital. They did finish the procedure. Now it's the day of Christmas Eve. December 24th, the third day on the road. <laughs> so they start the, you know, the, by now it's a 12-hour drive back to where they were going. Horrible, horrible rainstorm. Oh, <laughs> uh, no. At, at one point they had to stop because there was no vision. Literally a minute before midnight, they make it back to this woman's house. And as Pat said to us, I got her home to her kids for Christmas. You know, uh -huh. Now, that story is, you know, <laughs> is uh, beyond the beyond. But I mean, I mean, but it's true. 
Um, But that is the kind of things that people in this world are willing to do. And it's deeply, deeply moving to me to see, you know, this level of humanity of trying to help your, your fellow human beings. At the same time, however, what I would say is as much as I respect and honor what these volunteers do, this is not a good way to do healthcare. No. We can't always <laughs> assume there's going to be a pat who's willing to go on a three-day odyssey with a stranger and call an emergency in the middle of the night and drive in a blinding rainstorm. When it happens, it's wonderful, but we can't count on it. What of the? I mean, I've heard stories over the years, not just doing this book, but from previous research I did, you know, of rides that didn't show up of people who flaked, uh, of women left waiting, and then they were too late for their abortion. In, in other words, this is not how healthcare should be. Abortion is healthcare. Healthcare should be accessible. So as much as I have phenomenal respect and admiration for what these volunteers do, I, I, I want abortion to be normalized. No, you're absolutely right. I read the story in the book and you talk about some other organizations and volunteers. Another obstacle is cost, right? Like it can cost thousands of dollars to get an abortion, right? Well, depend. I mean, it, it depends. The pri- relative to other health cares, uh, abortion price has, f- most abortions take place in the first trimester, about 90%. The average price of a first trimester abortion is five fifty six hundred dollars for a woman who has nothing, who lives in her car, uh, or whose electricity has been turned off. That's it might as well be ten thousand. But later in pregnancy, the price goes up. But right. first trimester is a. a about, I would say about $600. And that's what I would expect. So I know that it's about $600, but it can go up to thousands yes. of dollars, right? Yes. That's yes. one um, yes. obstacle. Yes. And so I know that there are volunteers that, you know, there are organizations that help pay for the costs. You know, there are organizations that help, mm-hmm. you know, they, they, they escort you to clinics to get through protesters. There are organizations that provide transportation. There are lots of, you know, really big hearted, good people who are helping women get this health care because abortion is health care. Mm-hmm. But like you said, and I'm going to be a downer again this should not be necessary it is health care right you don't have to go through these these links to get a mammogram that's right that's right you know and and yeah so that's just my point i i just wish that obviously which is why you wrote the book that it didn't have to be this way yeah i i agree agree, because you wrote the book One of the things that I I had trouble wrapping my brain around was the fact that you actually have doctors, physicians, you know, medical professionals who are, you know, it's their responsibility to treat women who are against abortion, right? Mm -hmm. Just imagine that scenario. A woman goes in because we have this culture around pregnancy that it's a good thing. Everybody wants it. Everybody wants a child. It's a moment to be celebratory, right? So when there is a doctor who is, you know, anti-abortion and a woman goes in, you know, that culture just, you know, smacks, you know, smacks the situation in the face. Sometimes he has to refer her to a different doctor. Preferably, that's what happens. Mm-hmm. But in some cases, I think there's one in your book where the doctor was pretty hostile and, and was saying things to the woman while she was getting an ultrasound, like, you know, are you sure you want to kill your baby? Mm-hmm. Is, is that a story from an actual doctor or is that from one of the, the fake clinics, the crisis center clinics? No, that's from a real doctor. I mean, wow. I mean, look, abortion is the most arguably the most polarizing domestic issue in our society. 
I think doctors as a whole are probably more pro-choice than other segments of the population, but there are many doctors who are personally anti-abortion. I mean, the uh, American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists has a pro-life caucus within it. So yes, some doctors are very hostile to abortion. If a doctor says negative things to a patient, um, that's not right, and that's upsetting. But I'll tell you, Jennifer, what upsets me much more is that in a handful of states, I believe about half a dozen, doctors cannot be sued if they lie to patients, meaning that if a patient comes in pregnant, and let's assume she wants to be pregnant, uh, but if her ultrasound shows something very serious, uh, like some kind of anomaly that would very likely lead her to want an abortion, if the doctor doesn't tell her that, he or she cannot be sued uh, under state law. I mean, that blew my mind. I mean, I thought after studying this field for many years, I was beyond, (laughs) beyond shock. But the idea that a state would pass a law saying to doctors, yeah, it's okay if you lie to your patients, um, that, that blew my mind. That, yeah, I'm kind of speechless right now. I did read that, but when you said it, (laughs) when you said it out loud, I was just thinking about, you know, I have two children, just thinking about in my own case, I, trusted my doctors i trusted they were that they were telling me the truth like mm-hmm. w- what if they were just lying to me mm-hmm. and wow I, I can't imagine you said six states or half a dozen states yeah I, I think arizona was the first but you know i and maybe i'm wrong about this but that seems to me more harmful than the protesters now the protesters are terrible people right you know they right. they they accost women as they're trying to go in for their you know abortion health care you know they throw you know doll parts at them covered in red paint. These are terrible, terrible people. But at least you know where they stand, right? Yeah, that's true. When you go to your doctor, you, you the assumption is that your doctor will give you the best information that he yes, has to, right. for your life. And then the fact that they can lie to you and there are no legal consequences just blows my mind. It is shocking. Yes, it is shocking. Now, how often it actually happens, nobody has really calculated to my knowledge. I don't know how many women there are out there who've been lied to in that way. I I, I simply don't know. The fact that the law even exists symbolically, I think is very negative. In other words, what does it mean to have a law on the books that that says abortion is so horrible, so stigmatized, that something we would not let you do in other contexts, like if you lied to a patient uh, you told her she had a cancer that she didn't, or you told her she didn't have cancer when she did, you know, that would be unacceptable. The patient would have every right to sue. Uh, the fact that in this abortion case, it's okay to do that. And even if the law is never challenged, or even if it's never used, the existence of law I- itself is very disturbing to me. You know, I do have a question about the counseling that you mentioned in the book. You talk about how there's this requirement that some clinics counsel women, you know, who come in for an abortion. And I don't really understand the rationale behind that. You know, why why is that necessary? I mean, you know, it is an, an emotional decision for, for some women, not all women, but for some women, right? But a lot of healthcare decisions are really emotional. So why the counseling? Why is that a requirement? I'm glad you mentioned the counseling because it's very similar to what we were just talking about, about doctors being able to withhold information. Uh, In a number of states, the state legislature has mandated that 
abortion clinic staff, sometimes it's the doctor, sometimes it's other staff people, that they literally have to tell lies to their patients. So for example, if you uh, come to a clinic in a certain state, they'll tell you abortion if you, you are at higher risk for breast cancer. That's not true. You are at higher risk for suicide. That, that's not true. Uh, you will have difficulty uh, having subsequent children. That's not true. You know, so this is really shocking. Now, the other thing I told you about the doctors being able to withhold information about a fetal anomaly they see on a screen, uh, on, on the ultrasound, I don't know how often that happens, if, if it even happens. But we do know that every day in about uh, more than half the states, Women go to a clinic and are told lies. Sometimes the doctors say, the state requires me to tell you this. The women get very upset. <laughs> They've just been through a gauntlet of protesters. Now they're inside the clinic and someone is telling them they might get breast cancer. I mean, that, that really is, is egregious. I mean, egregious, and it happens every day. Yeah. You know, I don't know if you have numbers on this, but I'm curious as to how effective protesters are, right? Like they're, they're, they're a nuisance and they're, like I said, they're terrible people. But do we have any data to say that they are successful in, in people, you know, not getting an abortion? There's something in your book that you talk about the myth of uncertainty, right? Because I think they're operating on this assumption that women who are going in for an abortion are uncertain. They're unclear about the decision right. that they've made. So if they just harass them enough and make them feel terrible enough, that they'll turn around and and I don't think that that's necessarily the case. Right. No. In fact, again, I hope you'll forgive me again. I will cite my colleagues here at UCSF. Just within this past week, a very important study came out led by a researcher called Corinne de la Raca. And um, she, as well as others, studied decisional certainty. They followed women after five years, you know, high 90s, yes, the abortion was the right decision for me. Most women, a very high proportion of women who go to a clinic are decided, they've thought about it, they want an abortion. Some small portion are really, really ambivalent. And what clinics do, and I think this is, I mean, I'm glad we're talking about this because I don't think this is widely understood. When clinics see a woman who's truly torn, she wants the abortion, but she's crying. Uh, she maybe says to the to the counselor, "I will God forgive me because I'm a murderer." When when women say things like that, what clinics typically and it's only a small portion who do, but there are some clinics will simply say, "Take another couple hours to think about this." Or why don't you come back tomorrow uh, if, if you're still sure you want it? Nobody who works in a clinic wants to give an abortion to a woman who doesn't want one. Wow. So this is a hard question to ask because I would not know how to answer this, but you've been doing this for your entire career. How do we how do we tackle this? Because there's so many obstacles. Like, I don't know how many we've talked about here, but just how do we reverse this trend? Uh, this is <laughs> not a very original answer. Uh, you vote. I mean, we saw in the 2018 election that when we, uh, there's now a woman governor in Kansas, a Democratic woman, that is huge because Kansas used to be one of the most hostile states. That's where Dr. George Tiller was assassinated. It was, a, it was and in some respects still is, 
a very divided state, but now we have a woman governor who's not going to sign crazy legislation, even if the legislature passes it. But we also need to support clinics. I don't want anybody hearing this to think that uh, if you volunteer at a clinic, you'll have to drive to three states over three days like uh, like Pat did. But, <laughs> yeah. but you can, seriously, you can do very, very important, I mean, helpful things. It's very important to the extent one is able to, uh, to donate. Um, now, there are obviously a lot of very worthwhile issues competing for people's dollars, not the least of which is the campaign itself, but what what the future of abortion will be, whatever the court does, whether Roe is overturned or not, what doing this book made very clear to me is that is there's already a lot of traveling going on, and that costs money. It's the poorest women in our society who are needing to get some of the most costly procedures, costly because they need to travel. They need places to stay when they get to a state that has waiting periods. They need childcare for their kids. So voting, money, volunteering, those are my three asks. Well, Carol Jaffe, thank you so, so much for your work. And thank you for writing this really important book. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening. The Electorate is independently created and produced by me, Jen Taylor Skinner. And of course, I'm the host. But I also do all of the editing, the audio, and the graphics. You name it, it's on my plate. So if you enjoyed this episode of The Electorate, please help The Electorate grow by subscribing. Just hit the subscribe button on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. Also leave a review for The Electorate on iTunes. Lastly, one final way to help The Electorate is by following The Electorate on social media. That's at Electorate on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep up the good fight.